Welcome to the Tanakh Podcast. Today, Hoshea, Chapter 2, Perek Bet. And may our learning be for the merit of our brave Chayalei Tzavah Haganali Israel for their success and safe return, for the safe return of all the hostages and for the healing of the wounded from this war in Gaza. Here we go, chapter 2. We've been reading about Hoshea and his marriage, one of the strangest episodes um, of the Tanakh. Hoshea, one might say, is most eloquent on the subject of love. That's what we're going to talk about. But the marriage is strange. His wife, Gomer Batdivlaim, unfaithful woman that she was, she had a series of lovers, and yet Hoshea is caught between, on the one hand, anger, and on the other, tender longing. He cannot relinquish his love for her. And of course, in this prophetic insight, in this mashal, uh, we see the experience of Hashem and the Jewish people. God rescued Am Yisrael from slavery and led us through the wilderness to the promised land. But the people were unfaithful. They worshipped other gods. They were promiscuous in all of their spiritual attachments. And God said, as we saw in Perak Aleph, that he should have abandoned them. He should have said, Lo Ami, you are not my people. And yet, as we see here in Perak Bet, God's love is inextinguishable. He cannot let go. And that's why chapter 2 of Hoshea has some of the most sublime statements of love in the entire Tanakh. It begins with a reversal of what we read in chapter 1. If you remember in chapter 1, we spoke about how the first child, Jezreel, because Jezreel is going to be destroyed, lo ruchama, lo ami, but here in chapter 2, The people of Israel are like the sands of the sea. They cannot be measured or counted. Instead of saying, you are not my people, now B'nai Israel will be called the children of the living God. Yehuda and Israel will come together. The day of Jezreel will be marvelous. Call your brothers, Ami, my people, and call your sisters, Ruchama, she who is lovingly accepted, who is given, granted mercy. In other words, both Hoshea as the individual and God cannot accept their distance between themselves and their beloved life partner. Hoshea can't reject um, Gomer Bativlaim, and Amistral cannot reject the Jewish people. And that's what chapter 2 is talking about. It talks about the need to rehabilitate the marriage. Now, as you can see, this entire narrative thing is happening at a dual level, at the level of the personal marriage of Hoshea and at the level of God in the Jewish people. And the solution is the wilderness, the Midbar. The wilderness is a place where there are no other people and therefore there are no other lovers. That's true on the individual level. It's a place where you can go on a teul, on a date, and just be the two of you and rekindle your love. In ancient Israel, though, 
Baal was the rain god. Baal is the big temptation of Israel. It brings the rain for the land. And of course, the wilderness is the place where Baal has no power because the wilderness is the place that there is no rain. So what God said is that he's going to destroy the land of Israel. He's going to turn it into a wilderness. And then the Baal will be rendered powerless. Israel will appreciate their enduring bond with God and they will renew their relationship. Let's read a little bit from Perak Beit. He says in, in rather shocking language, Penashitena um, Aruma, I'll strip her naked Vixaktiya Kiyom Hivalda. I'll leave her as the on the day she was born. Basamtiya Kamidbar, I'll make her like a wilderness for Shatiha Kaeretsiyah, and I will make her like a dry land. And of course, there's this sense of the day that she was born, which is the day that the Jewish people were born in the wilderness. There's also an element here of, of possibly her being left abandoned, naked and bare, with, without anything. As it says in the next uh, verse, um, it says, I'll go after my lovers, those who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen. She will look for her lovers. She won't find them. She'll look for them. She won't find them. In other words, and I, I'll, and she'll, she'll say, I'll, I'll go and look for my original husband. What's happening here? God is saying, I'm going to turn the land into a wilderness. And when the people realize that the lovers, the Baal, all the other gods can't provide, they'll say, well, we might as well go back to the God of Israel. Or in the case of the wife, when she's left abandoned with, with no resources, she'll say, well, you know what? I want to go back to my original husband. Now, this isn't all cruel. He even talks about in the very next verse, Let me speak to her tenderly. Let me try and um, encourage her. I'm going to speak to her heart. I'm going to give her vineyards from the wilderness. I'm going to give her emek um, achor, the ugly valley or the dry valley, will become a, a gateway of hope. We're going to do a reset, and she's going to realize. And on that day, says God, she will call me her husband. And she won't call me anymore. Ba'ali. Um, let's explain. The key words here are Ish and Baal, and they both mean husband. Hoshea is talking about, obviously, preferring God as Israel's Ish rather than the God called the Baal. But there's also two other, there's a different dimension here because Hoshea is talking about two kinds of marital relationships. One is signaled by Baal. It means domination. It doesn't only mean husband. It wasn't only the name of the Canaanite God. It's a relationship of male dominance in which women are not loved, they're owned, they're not honored, right? The Baal is a, is a power relationship, whereas Ish, Ish and Isha, there's a mutuality there. Ish and Isha, Ish is a notion of covenant. It's a marriage built on loyalty, on trust, on mutual agreement, on words that bind us to one another in good times and bad. 
on faithfulness. And that's the type of relationship that God wants with Israel. It's not a relationship that needs to be enforced by power. It should be bolstered by the force of a glue that binds, the force of a covenant. And here we get to another one of the beautiful statements here of the Perak. says God. I will betroth you forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice with love and mercy. I will betroth you in faithfulness and then you will know that I am God. There's a sense of the renewal, the development, the maturation of the relationship that through our troubles the jewish people will realize that we can only rely on god and that the relationship between us and god is one of mutual trust of emunah of chesed and rachamim and not one of power these of course are psukim that when men put on their tefillin and they wind the 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 ritzuot the the they wind them round their fingers Almost like a ring, they say these words, I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me with righteousness and justice and love and mercy. I'll betroth you with faithfulness and you shall know God. Almost as if we are expressing our commitment to God. But two beautiful notes here. Two maybe notes from Zionism, from contemporary world. The first one is, is of course, that this notion of the Petach Tikva. Petach Tikva was one of the first Zionist Yishuvim set up in the, the first wave of the Aliyah Shonah set up in the 1880s, along with Rosh Pina and Zichron Yaakov. And Petach Tikva was set up in marshland. Um, it was an Emek Achor, it was a, a, a horrible valley. And they said, this will become a gateway of hope. And clearly, this chapter resonated with them. They said, we have been through our Galut, we have been through our own Midbar, and we have now sort of woken up and understood that we have to rehabilitate our nation. We have to rehabilitate our land. It was set up by religious settlers who saw in this chapter the landscape of Jewish history and decided to call one of this very, very early Yishuvim agricultural settlements, Petach Tikva. The second is a gorgeous letter which Ben-Gurion wrote in 1953. And he writes it to uh, the Ministry of Finance, to the Sar HaOtsar. And he mentions it, it's, it's the Sar HaOtsar, the, the finance ministry, had, had created a tax document where he spoke about various uh, uh, reductions that one gets if one, has, if one is married. Uh, you know, sometimes you get extra tax points if you are husband and wife. And he'd used the word Baal and Isha. And uh, on the 5th of May, 1953, Ben-Gurion pens a letter and he says to him, don't use the word Baal and Isha. Leda'ati, to my mind, yesh lahagid ishi and ishti. He says, instead, you should talk about ish and isha. Why? Because he says, bamila ba'al. With using the word ba'al, yesh mashma'ut shel adnut There is the connotation of mastery, of ownership, of dominance and avodah zara. This is not the, the appropriate respect for a woman. Women and men have the same rights, and therefore Ish isha gives a sense of mutuality and, and equality. And he quotes our Pasuk in Hoshea. 
He says, He says, Don't write Baal and Isha, write Ishwi Isha, like Hoshea said, David Ben Gurion. <laughs> David Ben Gurion is worried about tax documents and the tax documents should reflect a sense of egalitarianism. And he takes this directly from our chapter in Hosea. So maybe we can see just how relevant these are, both to the landscape of Jewish history and to the landscape of our social reality. Have a great day. See you tomorrow. There are still-